Welcome to episode 328 of Canada's Pinball Podcast. I'm your host, Canada, the only pinball podcast with two Twippy Awards. Thank you again, everybody who voted for this podcast for Favorite Pinball Podcast. I truly appreciate it. You made my weekend very, very special. You made everybody who's friends and family of me very, very happy. Um, thank you from the bottom of my heart. Now, look, I, I did a little TPF recap show with Blake Dumasnil. Um, Blake did the artwork for TPF. So if you were walking around the show and you bought a T-shirt, uh, you are wearing Blake's creation. So we did a little bit of a run over of the entire show, what we saw there, what our thoughts were of TPF. We had a great time. I enjoyed meeting so many of you in person. So thank you again um, to Kim and Ed for putting on an amazing show. And thank you to everybody who came up to me at the at the show this weekend. Uh, it was just a great time. I, I can't tell you how special it was. Now, look, here's the deal. I want to do something. I want to sort of turn a page uh, before I air this interview and talk about moving forward in this hobby. And I think there's a lot of really exciting stuff going on in 2019 that we can't wait to hear about. Speaking of... Uh, I heard that tonight at 9 o'clock Eastern Time, Stern, I think Gary Stern, Stern is going to brief all of their distributors tonight on what Steve Ritchie's next game is going to be. And that's going to happen at 9 p.m. tonight, which lends a lot of credibility to the rumor that the entire game will be announced tomorrow because we all know that distributors have loose lips. And once Stern briefs them on the title, um, they are going to leak that information to their buyers. And so I fully expect to hear what Steve Ritchie's next game is with an announcement from Stern tomorrow. Now, if we don't get the official announcement from Stern tomorrow, I do think we will start to hear in the rumor mill just a confirmation of what it is. And I do think it's going to be Black Knight uh, 3000. Okay, so we, we exciting week, right? We're just coming out of a show and a whole new game is coming out. Um, so that's awesome. That is really awesome. Um, but I just want to say this. And I've been looking at the Twippy thread, and I want to say this. I want everybody to just do me a favor, and let's put the negative aspect of that show behind us and move on. And by that, I mean the guy who was booing me when the Favorite Pinball Podcast Award was announced. It's okay. Um, I know who he is. I'm not going to out him on this show. I forgive him. I think he still wants to punish me for what happened in New York. And look, not everyone is going to like me. Not, some people just might hate me forever. I can't change that, but I just want all of you guys to do me a favor. Let's move on and let's celebrate all of the great achievements that were recognized during that amazing show Saturday night. And let's talk about it. I think it's a really interesting debate to talk about game of the year, animations, callouts, all of those things. Where the community voted is really interesting and that's where the bulk of the conversation should take place. And let's leave the one negative thing. Let's let's just cut it out, okay? And I know it's hard for Pinside sometimes to just do that and not focus on that. But here's the thing. I forgive that guy for doing what he did. I think he probably feels bad about it. If he could go back, he wouldn't do it again. And I think he should apologize to all the people of the show. But now let's talk about all the great pinball that was recognized at the show itself. Um, there are some surprises about what was left out of awards that uh, we talk about with Blake on this episode. But really, 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 I'm really impressed at how pinball is starting to like develop such amazing content, right? Award shows, all the amazing podcasts that are out there, 
all the amazing pinball streamers that are out there. This hobby, when I got into it, it, it was like there was very few things you could engage with uh, if you were really into pinball. And I think right now, what excites me about 2019 and 2020 is just all of the awesome personalities and content and manufacturers that are that are out there uh, that, that are making stuff for you if you are into pinball. I mean, it, it is much more robust now than it ever was before. And doesn't it also feel like we've sort of moved past that era of like all the failed boutiques of the Skippies and the Dutch pinballs and the highway pinballs. And I know like minus my, my, my stupid rumors a week ago, uh, there's a lot of real stuff happening, real games going into real boxes that can go into your real home and take your real money. Now I do, I know that doesn't like absolve the people who are still in pain from, from the, from the, you know, the, the, the mishaps of yesteryears with some of these companies, but man, it is an awesome time to speculate and to wonder and dream about what's coming up in pinball. Okay. And I have the same advice to all my friends because just wait the next six months, you're going to see so many new titles. So it's an awesome time to wait. So everyone, thank you again for all of the kind notes and all of the remarks on social media, all the emails I got. I'm going to call out some of you guys, you know, in future episodes for, for what you've said. And I have to give a very sort of just the one that really also just meant so much to me last night. And I wasn't expecting it. Haven't heard from him in a while. And I just, I got a really nice note from Lyman Sheets just saying, you know, keep up the good work and, and keep speaking the truth. And it meant so much. It meant so much because I respect him. He's such a class act. And I had a lot of good conversations with people at Stern Pinball at the show as well uh, that meant a lot to me. And I think that's important is that we're all sort of looking for ways to better ourselves and better the show and better the content and just better how we can entertain all of you as you turn to this uh, Canada's Pinball podcast for your pinball enjoyment and hopefully some education on pinball. So without a doubt, let me um, let me air this interview. I think you're going to enjoy it. We do a recap and, I'm, and I want to hear from you what your thoughts were on TPF. Uh, email me at CanadaPinball at gmail.com. Here's to an exciting, optimistic uh, 2019 in pinball. I think we all should be positive and really excited about what's to come down the road in pinball. Have a great day, everybody. All right, we are back in our respective homes, Blake Dumasnil and Canada. We were bunk buddies at TPF, Blake, right? Yeah, yeah, it worked out fine. And now the the campaign begins to win the third Twippy to be the best pinball podcast of 2019. So let's not mess it up in our, our, our first show as the campaign begins for that. All right, no pressure. All right, so, so Blake, we're going to recap TPF this year, and we both were there. Um, what, your, what were your overall thoughts of the show? And it's usually like one of the most anticipated shows, one of the biggest shows. Let, let's start with just your overall thoughts, and then we'll go into the specific manufacturers and what they did at the show. Uh, overall, I thought the show was an even greater improvement on the last couple of years since they really have been polishing it up even more. Um, they had moved the tournament out of the main main hall this year into a separate space and i think that that actually ended up working well to the benefit of the show um it kind of eliminated some bottlenecks up near the front entrance and it opened up a lot more space for vendors and there were there were a lot more new vendors at this show this year than i think we've ever seen before so i think people realize that tpf really is the go-to show and it's kind of a replacement to the chicago expo at this point Right. 
Yeah, and and I did I did notice that when, last year when you walked in there was this huge tournament section and th- and this year they sort of relegated it off to the side uh, uh, sort of like on your way to the seminar room it was off to the right there uh, so the show like were you disappointed that there wasn't a deep root presence after last year's they were advertising heavily that this would be the five days of deep root uh, I was disappointed from the standpoint that. It was a missed opportunity. I think this was the perfect year for them to really roll in with a big presentation and, you know, show something really impressive because going into it, there really wasn't much new being revealed this year. And so I understand if they weren't ready that that was smart on their part to just wait it out and, and we'll get to see it when they're absolutely ready to show it to us. But I think that they could have made a huge splash this year. Right. And I noticed I was reading Pinside today and there's there's a lot of debate about whether or not a manufacturer's presence at a show like TPF is important when it comes to revealing a new game. Do you think, Blake, that a show like that is a prime opportunity to reveal or do you think it doesn't matter if 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 if, if, if they just skip it and do it some other time? So I think that it it matters depending on the company. I think that a company like Stern that's proven time and time again that they're reliable, they can build these games, crank them out. Um, We know what we're getting in terms of quality from them. They can go reveal these games via IGN or any of the other, you know, uh, news outlets that they want to online. And it's not going to be that big of a deal. Uh, I think it makes sense that they're not wanting to step on the sales of their current, hot title, which, you know, of course was a monsters for this particular show, uh, and, and reveal a new game. But in the case of deep root, you know, this is a company that hasn't shown anything to anybody. People have zero trust or faith or anything established with this company at this point. And I think it's critical for them to have a presence at a show and to allow people to see that in person versus just revealing things online. And then people are like, well, this looks good, but let's see what the product actually looks like in person. So I think it really depends on the company. Right. Well, I guess what I'm always interested or curious, I guess is the better word. I'm curious though, imagine this scenario, imagine deep root doesn't spend all the money to sort of, I mean, Texas made sense because it was in their backyard, but now that Texas is over, if you're them, does it make sense to spend all the money to ship games and ship employees and, and do all that stuff? Or do they, just fly a few marquee media outlets into their factory to reveal it on one uh, on a bigger scale and that because they know they must know that the first people that are prone to like this and want to buy it are going to be the pinball fanatics that really don't need much more right than some images and some trusted people to step on a game and stream it for them i mean we've seen people buy games blake with with much less well, that's that's true. Uh, it's it's a valid point. I think that I think that especially with the variety of manufacturers out there, both large and small, there's still a concern about quality and what quality these machines are that people are getting. You know, I think that you can put together a machine that looks excellent, and it can be a horrible build quality, and vice versa. You could have a game that maybe terrible looking, but it could actually be built like a tank. So, um, you know, I do think that especially where Deep Root is pushing this concept of, you know, 
evolving the manufacturing process and really reinventing it. Um, I think that's something people are going to want to see in person. Uh, you know, the, the internet's powerful and, and, you know, it, it gets information to people immediately nowadays. And so you, you absolutely could fly some media outlets, you know, out there and, and probably accomplish the same thing. But depending on the price points of these games and what they're asking of people, I do think that people are going to want to see something in person before they, before they trust them. And, and that also goes back to just the connection to Zidware, you right. know, well, that's a good point. I mean, at the shows, when you flip a game like Thunderbirds and then you flip a game like Pirates of the Caribbean, uh, you can tell which one's the Cadillac and, and which one is the civic, right? I mean, there's just, there's just, yeah. it, uh, you feel it, you feel it. And you, you, you only can get that if you actually are flipping the game. All right, so back to TPF. So it, I think we all agree that Deep Root not being there was, was their lack of presence there was felt by people who who booked their travel to the show like a year ago because we all were expecting it. Now, in terms of who was there, uh, who do you think had the most impressive presence on the show floor? Uh, I think that you know Stern continues to to have a, a very solid presence just due to the sheer number of games that they've got on the floor at, at any of these shows, you know, but I really attribute that to Marco. I mean, the Marco folks go above and beyond, you know, showcasing Stern's products. Uh, and they do it in a very grandiose manner with the way their booth looks and everything. I mean, there were, I don't even know how many monsters machines were on the floor at the show this weekend. I, I should I mean, count just, it. I, I, it had to, <laughs> It had to have been at least, at least twenty games. At least, I I think that they were probably closer to like twenty five or thirty. I think that there were, I think there were over twelve to fifteen premiums alone. You know, and, and I think this was one of the first real opportunities for everybody to see what the premium looked like in person, uh, which, which was good that they had that many of them. So I, uh, I thought the I, premium I think Chicago. Looked... Oh, uh, Chicago gaming, uh, also had a strong presence. I thought they had a, a really sizable booth and they had a lot of models of each of their games for people to check out. Now, you know, was Chicago gaming to the right of Kingpin games or not? Is that right? Uh, so wait, no, wait. Chicago, Chicago gaming, they were kind of tucked over in a little cul-de-sac area up near Spooky's booth. They were more in the front left portion of the exhibit hall. Gotcha. I miss, I feel like I missed them. I don't know how I missed that section. So, okay. So Marco had a ton of games. What did you think of Munster's premium? I thought it looked amazing. I was like, wow. I mean, I, I don't think anyone who gets a premium is going to be disappointed. As soon as I saw those games coming out of the boxes the other day, and then especially when they lit them up, the Munsters Premium, in my opinion, is hands down the the premier model of all three Munsters games. And, you know, Chris's artwork and color looks absolutely spectacular, and I see why people gravitated towards it. But the black and white is just so unique. I mean, and, you know, most people that have a lineup of games that are all in color, this is something that's going to stand out as something special, I think. And um, I, I was very impressed by it. The game is still a lot of fun. I played it a few times, and uh, I look forward to getting on it some more. But um, I, the black and white was amazing. Right. Well, let's talk about – so let's talk about the games that were sort of like – the first or sort of like first experiences with some titles and there weren't that many i mean there were usually 
I feel like there's a little bit more reveals and, and sort of announcements of new titles. I will say the show this year was very void of of new games and announcements and reveals of titles. So we didn't have a significant amount. Uh, really, when you think about it, was there what were the new titles that were announced or revealed? I mean, we, I'm trying to like Cosmic Carnival. That that's already been yeah, announced. Yeah. They just showed it and had it on the floor. That's Suncoast Pinball, right? Yeah, they. You know, I would consider that a new reveal because I don't think anybody has publicly seen that game in person up until the show this weekend. And what did um, you think of it? Um, the game is absolutely beautiful. You know, once again, Dirty Donnie just knocked it out of the park. I think he gave the game a lot of personality. It's obviously very much his style, but he did a lot of different things in the character designs that he wasn't able to do with like Aerosmith or Metallica. Um, you know, I think that the value that's truly in that game is going to stem from how cool the artwork is that he did. Um, I'll say this. I, um, you know, and I don't know if the ramps were like prototype plastic ramps. They, they seemed a little, a little flimsy. Um, however, I was checking out the cabinet and the game is, it's built almost identically like a stern game in terms of the size, the proportions, um, the size of the LCD. And, I actually was very impressed with the build quality. I mean, the lockdown bar, everything felt solid. It, it felt at least as good as a Stern machine did. Um, you know, I don't really know how well the mechanics of the game are going to hold up necessarily, but in terms of just the overall um, cabinet build and everything, I thought it was pretty good. It was right. not bad. I thought that, honestly, for a new game that a lot of people had not seen, the game made a very good showing. Right. I kind of felt like when I saw it that Dirty Donnie has like a, a, a leftover box of crayons that he had when he <laughs> made the Aerosmith game because I was, I was just a little surprised though that the color selection was so identical to the yeah. Aerosmith package and I almost felt like it was too identical. Like it was like the exact same purple it felt like and it, I wish they would that, have differentiated it from Aerosmith knowing that that was his last project and it just felt so similar. I, I, that is a very fair assessment, and I do agree with that. It, it it visually does look a lot like Aerosmith. It's kind of a cross between Aerosmith and and uh, the Can Crusher, you know, machine. So uh, I, I think that when you think of carnivals, um, I think of more yellows and reds and and warmer tones, and there probably could have been. Um, more use of those colors, you know, scattered throughout. I guess they kind of gravitated towards the the cooler tones to kind of tie it into the, right. the space theme, sort of. Um, I, I I get the the mindset behind that decision, but I agree with you. There probably could have been a little bit more contrast. Well, and and you know, when you say when I think carnival, and when I think carnival, I think of of rides and toys and merry-go-rounds and roller coasters and all sorts of fun stuff, all sorts of things that are moving and animated and coming to life and you know and then right. i looked at the game and it's beautiful it is beautiful but there's no movement there's no mechanisms in it is i mean did i miss are, I, there's like sculpts that are really cool there are those squiggly ramps but i don't think there's any real moving mechanisms toys or gimmicks in it am, am did i am i missing those or no no i don't think so you're it's missing very anything simple. <laughs> it's it's very like a 
the game is like a I, I consider it to be a very modernized futuristic take on Comet, basically. Okay. I think people are saying that uh, the ramps are similar. Well, the ramps are similar. Uh, I think that the simplicity of the game, if you will, in terms of just there's not a lot of height to the to the game. You know, you've just got those ramps that are both the same height and everything. It's a very symmetrical game. Um, I think that that does make it feel more like you know the the '80s era games. Um, that's not necessarily a bad thing. Um, How much is it? You know, I thought I heard somebody say that it was going to be around six grand, um, six to seven somewhere. And I don't know if it's truly closer to the six mark or the seven mark, but, um, you know, do you feel like you're getting a lot of game for that price point? Honestly, I, I don't really think so. I think that you can go get a Chicago gaming machine, um, or go get an American pinball machine for around the same price, and you're getting a lot more, you know, to the game. Right. It it almost it makes Alice Cooper's Nightmare Castle look look like a JJP compared to it, and I think it's going to be That's a tough true. sell. And I think these games, these boutiques, and and this is not me being a jerk, but I I think they they they're, they're almost like making this stuff. Their target audience is just for the guy who just absolutely needs something that's different. But mm-hmm. I don't know if I, I look at this stuff and say they're improving upon what is already available. And I think it's going to be hard. I think it's going to be a hard sell. And you said it earlier, Blake, if the most valuable thing people are getting from a pinball machine is just the artwork, um, that's not going to work anymore because we have so much good art across the board everywhere now. So yeah. that, that's I mean, I, I want to give the I, I want to give the Suncoast guys credit from the standpoint that they they showed up to TPF and actually looked like a polished professional company in terms of just the way that their brand was spread across their booth, the merch that they had. Not that that's hard to make t-shirts and stuff, but I thought overall the presentation of it was very professional and the game absolutely didn't look like a homebrew, you know? Right. right. It, it was at least polished enough that it looked like it could be professionally built. A little, some pipe and draping, a ta- a black table with a tablecloth, yeah. and two games <laughs> facing away from each other, and all of a sudden, you're a legitimate professional pinball company now. All right, so let's talk about uh, the one company that really needed to have a, a great showing uh, was American Pinball with Oktoberfest. I mean, this is sort of the moment in which people were getting their hands on the final production. Uh, we both played Oktoberfest a lot, so I want to share... Uh, first, Blake, what you thought of the game and how you think AP did at TPF. Okay, well, um, you're absolutely right. American Pinball needed to come to TPF, you know, swinging uh, for the fences with this because I think that they knew from the initial reactions online that the theme was not going to resonate with a lot of people and that they needed to rely on the fun factor of the game. Uh, They had a great setup. I think they had at least six Oktoberfests uh, actually, maybe seven Oktoberfests on the floor. And, um, you know, American Pinball definitely looks like a professional company. They they carry themselves very well. And uh, I always saw Josh and Joe and those guys, you know, interacting with everybody and explaining the game. Uh, overall, I was going into the show honestly not feeling that excited about seeing Oktoberfest, just simply because you know, what we've seen of it so far didn't seem to do a whole lot for me. Um, the theme certainly didn't really click. Um, but I will say that, uh, Joe has really 
put together another fantastically unique layout that was a lot of fun to shoot. The game, the game is a lot of fun to shoot. If you can, if you can get past the theme and some of the animations and, you know, stuff like that and, and some of the art direction decisions, um, it is a very unique layout. It's definitely not a fan layout. There, there were some really cool aspects of the game that I think it would take a while to, to master those things. And then in a home environment, um, that creates more longevity. Right. So you enjoyed it. I actually enjoyed it way more than I thought I was going to. Yeah. No. And, and I've, I've been reading and I've been following what people have been saying about the game from the show. And I've heard a lot of positive stuff. So I, I, I do think American pinball had a really good showing, uh, with Oktoberfest. Uh, they had a bunch in their booth. There was also a, one in coin takers booth. There was one in Zach's booth and flipping it out pinball. Um, so distributors had it. So you were able to jump on an October Oktoberfest um, pretty f frequently. I can't even talk right now. I don't know what's happening. Maybe it's the jet. <laughs> I can't even blame it on jet lag. Um, look, I think the game shoots really well. I do. I agree. I, it's a different layout. It's I, I, a lot of people who are looking for something different. I think we'll appreciate that it doesn't feel uh, sort of like the typical, uh, I, I don't want to even say like stern fan layout, but it is. It's the complete opposite of a stern fan layout. Uh, there, I, I'm, I'm just curious to see how orders will go for the game. And this is my whole thing is I think the game shoots well. Uh, it, it's going to come down to a few things for me. It's going to come down to the theme. You know, is this a game people want to own? Because I think when you're talking about owning a game, um, will people want to have this as a theme that they purchase? Uh, I do wish the artwork was a little bit better. I think the artwork for me, it's not that it's like bad, right? It's a very layered. It's, there's a lot of it. There's a lot of art, right? It doesn't look yeah. like bad, like a, like Game of Thrones bad or, or Star Trek bad. Uh, but there's just, there's just something about the art that doesn't make me smile or doesn't sort of pull me in, you know? And I just wish there was a little bit more of a cohesiveness to the art package. Um, other than that, I had fun shooting it. I had fun shooting it. Uh, I just still think it's going to be a little difficult given the fact that it's $7,500 uh, to win out um, where the current landscape is with what's available for that much money. But I do wish them luck. I look forward to having Josh come on the show and talk more about the game, see how you know far along the game is, and just to see like what their plans are for this and moving forward because we know AP... Uh, they're also starting to ramp up the ability to contract manufacture additional games uh, within their facility, which is exciting when you think about it. I mean, this is this is not I don't it doesn't sound like this game is going to make or break them. It sounds like they're going to keep going. Yeah, I, I think so. And and I mean, uh, just, you know, seeing Joe interact with folks over the weekend, I think that he's very happy with where they're at and what they're doing. And obviously, you know, this was a game that he had been pushing for, for over 20 years, it sounds like. Um, but I, I think that they're definitely moving, moving ahead, regardless of how well a game does. Obviously, you know, all companies want their games to do well. Um, I, I think that what I took away from Oktoberfest the most was that this game may be similar in how people react to it as they did with dialed in in terms of you've got this very vibrant, colorful world that they've built 
but there wasn't much in terms of the music and the callouts and stuff that really drew any excitement from me while I was playing it. The the layout of the game was exciting to play, and it was a lot of fun, you know, hitting the roller coaster ramps and all that kind of stuff. But I want the game to like talk to me, to interact with me. I want you know the music to be catchy, and you want to be drawn into that world. And I'm not saying that it can't be done, but um, so far I'm not really getting that vibe from it. Right. Yeah, we'll see. I mean, it's and it's always hard. We should have said this. You know, a little bit of the caveat is playing these games at the show is always difficult to get yeah. immersed in the experience. And and I cheated and I snuck in there at seven a.m. to turn on Oktoberfest and turn on Alice Cooper's Nightmare Castle and other stuff. Uh, because when once the show's going, forget it. Don't ever take a review from someone who's reviewing a game in the middle of a crowded show like TPF. The only thing you'll be able to really review are the shots. And even then, if the game's not set up right, if there's power drain on the machine, you're not going to really understand how the game would play in a home environment. So uh, take everything we say with a little bit of a grain of salt. So, okay, so... How do, let me just ask you a hypothetical, Blake, and, I, and I'll give you my answer as well. How many Oktoberfests do you think they're going to sell? Um, I think that they're going to be lucky. This may sound really bad, but I think they're going to be lucky to get 1,000 units sold. I think they would consider that successful, 1,000 units at 7,500 a pop. That's not, yeah. it's not, it's not a bad payday. It was a 7.5 million. Yeah, it's not it's not bad in terms of the numbers. Um, I mean, that just that doesn't sound like a huge hit in terms of units sold and really getting the game out there. But but I think that for a theme that has kind of been polarizing to people, uh, yeah, I think that American Pinball could consider that a success. Right. I don't think it'll go that high. I'm not sure how many Houdini sold. Um, I, just knowing what's coming out and knowing there's a lot happening soon. I mean, we're we're probably going to see Steve Ritchie's game Tuesday. Um, I, I think I think it's going to be probably around half that. I think 500. I would say yeah. 500 to 750 is more of the reality. Uh, and I think what's interesting, and this is a good segue, as they think about putting another line in action at American Pinball. Uh, one of the seminars I went to, and we're gonna we're gonna sort of bleed everything together in this chat about TPF uh, was Kingpin by uh, Circus Pinball. And is it Circus Pinball? Pinball Circus? It's Pinball Circus. Circus Maximus. Circus. Okay. See, this is, there's too many. (laughs) I always get confused with that, right? Because, okay. So Circus Maximus, um, they're making Python Angelo's Pinball Circus, but they're also remaking Kingpin. Now, what was really interesting in their seminar is they're pretty much it sounds like they're nearing the finish line and they are now talking to contract manufacturers in the Chicago area. And so that means they're probably talking to American Pinball, uh, Chicago Gaming, and maybe even Stern. I don't, Stern hasn't really contract manufactured a game since Medieval Madness. I don't know if they're still going to do it. Uh, but do you think there's a chance that Kingpin could be a title that American Pinball puts on the line alongside of Oktoberfest to, to at least you know, hedge their bets a little bit? Uh, I think that, I think there's enough positive history with Kingpin in terms of, it's a game that a lot of people have wanted to see. Um, the, it's a great layout, honestly. I mean, Mark, Mark Ritchie's a, a wonderful designer and, um, I, I shot it this past week and I really enjoyed it once again. Um, 
I could see them going after it. It's it's a flushed out enough game that I could see them feeling comfortable putting that on the line and helping offset some things. Yeah. Right. I mean, they're going to have to do it. I mean, I don't think there's any other option. I don't think American Pinball uh, is going to be very successful if they go all in on these original themes or, you know, and they're not like original themes, but they're like IPs that don't require trademarks per se. So, Right. You know, with Sherlock Holmes and Robin Hood and Valkyrie and uh, what was it, Poker Run, like the the other four titles we saw them trademarking. I mean, it just has me a little bit worried that they don't have a theme or a title that's a little bit of take my money now. And I think Kingpin uh, is a game that would get a lot of attention from the pinball world because I do want to see these these new companies, Blake. I, I do think they have to make a game in which people want a lot of them. And, and, you know, we're, I'm talking like at least 2000 machines, yeah. you know, to really become a viable player in the pinball market. So we'll see what happens. Um, Oktoberfest should be shipping, uh, I think as early as April. So if you are interested in one, I know, um, they're getting ready to throw that game on the line if it's not on the line already. So moving <laughs> on. Probably the strangest reveal, well, not strange, but just sort of underwhelming reveal was Jersey Jack's presence at the show. And I talked a little bit about it on a couple of my previous podcasts this this past weekend. Um, but Jack sort of walked in there. We knew he was going to talk about the Yellow Brick Road edition. And then, Blake, we were in the seminar. And, and what did you think of how that all went down? Well, everybody knew that it was coming, and I think that the expectation was, all right, they're gonna do this. They're gonna do yet another run of this game. Uh, they're gonna put some new armor on it and stuff like that. Give it a new name. Uh, I think we all knew that they were going to be removing at least one or possibly multiple mechanisms. Turned out it was just a flying monkey mechanism. What I certainly wasn't expecting, and I don't think anybody else was expecting, was that they made the game more expensive after having removed one of the key mechanisms that's featured in all the other models. And so they also really didn't change the artwork on the game that much. I mean, it's, it's not a different enough version in my opinion to the other LEs that are out there already to, to justify the cost. And so that's why the reaction from everybody this whole weekend I mean, every time that you and I would talk to somebody about that reveal, everyone was shaking their heads like, what was that about? You know, why why are they doing this? This this doesn't make sense. It's not smart. It's just milking the license yet again when there's already been enough versions made of it. Um, and then on top of that, you know, Jack couldn't even say we are only going to make 200 or 250 of these games and that's it. He still left the door open for this, for, for the number to go up, depending on however they feel like, however many they feel like they want to make. And then he said, we might even go back and do the Ruby red edition again. Yeah. So, it, 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 <laughs> it's like, Oh my God. The, yeah, the, and when he said that, that that it's almost like nothing is sacred in 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 Jersey That's Jack's right. promises around limited editions, and it's almost become a little bit of a running joke in the pinball world. It, it's just like just wait, he's he's going to make a Black Pearl edition. Just wait, he'll make another version, uh, and it's a little unfortunate because. You can't do that. You can't do it in this kind of hobby because the people are just 
too smart. <laughs> I say that and then I start laughing because are we too smart when people buy games sight unseen and 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 people are buying twenty five thousand dollar Magic Girls that don't even work. We'll talk a little bit about that because there was one at the show. But I think yeah. Jack didn't really have a plan for this game other than. It was a business plan. It was a business decision. We need to put something on the line to yeah. fill the gap between Pirates of the Caribbean production and Willy Wonka production. And this was this made the most sense, right? It was like it was just to fill in that gap of a couple of months because we can't have nothing on the line uh, for two to three months with that kind of company, right? They they're just you, they can't survive. And I, I bet dialed in orders have stopped. Um, I, I bet there's no more hobbits to be run. And so Jack is just going back to the one game that has constantly had demand and that's wizard of Oz. Now yeah. you're right. And I, I can't fault him for that either. You know, I, 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 I kind of even got the vibe from him after they did the reveal that he knows this isn't what anybody wants to see just yet another edition of a game that's been made for seven years now. Um, but yeah, it just seemed like it was to pacify time and to, just get something on the line. Right. But my big issue is this, and, and I have no problem with rerunning Waz. And, and I was reading one guy on Pinside, and he said, look, I sold my Emerald City because I wanted to get this new one. And, and for a lot of people out there, if Waz is a great game that you love, and, and Waz is a game that uh, is a keeper for you, I think a lot of those people, Blake, were looking at this reveal and saying, if it's going to be truly limited and if it's going to be really special, you know, with the new light boards and the new cabinet, if Jack gives enough value in this game, I'm okay, like trading up to this one and making this the permanent was that's in my home. And I think those people were, were severely disappointed by losing the monkey mechanism. For me, too, this is the one thing. I didn't even I didn't mention this on, on my other podcast when I talked about it. You just just go look at the topper on this thing for $11,500. It's just like, it's just an afterthought. You know, it, there's nothing about that topper that shows, uh, that, that feels special. And when you start getting above $10,000 for a pinball machine, I do think it needs to start having more details and more special items on it that justify it. And they just yank stuff out. I mean, there, there was nothing really put in in you, you're paying for the new cabinet layout the sparkle and the yellow and it <laughs> looks like roller coaster tycoon with all that yellow i just don't even like the yellow on the wire forms that much um so so here's the other thing yeah. too blake here here and i'm just going to be honest with, with the listeners of the show because this is what you expect from the show the distributors all knew that jack was going to make 500 of them and yet he got up there and said, it's going to be 200 and then we're going to assess things and go from there. And then so the first thing a buyer is going to do is go to his distributor and say, well, are they going to make more? And the distributors are like, yep, they're making 300 more next year. And it's just like, well, why not just say it's one of 500 if you buy one today? And, and, and right. just cap it at that. Because the problem is if Jack sells all 500, you know what he's going to do? He's going to run another run. He's going to call it something else, the Tin Man edition. You know, and it's just, yeah. it, it just, at some point, it needs to stop. At some point, it needs to stop, and they need to be more honest with their customers about what's limited and what's not. And if it's not limited, stop calling it limited. You can't have three different limited editions. You, you, I mean, you, you can, but it just <laughs> seems so silly, and it just gets ridiculous at this point. 
Um, so the other big thing was this, the, the ceasing production of Pirates of the Caribbean. And I think that was a little bit of a dark cloud over Jersey Jack's presence at TPF. It definitely seemed like it was impacting Eric, even though he's never, you know, he's, he always has that little bit of a deadpan demeanor. He did seem bummed out. And what, what were your thoughts, Blake, when you saw him uh, address that and then have to sit through how Waz was made, a game that's seven years old? Yeah, I, I think that that's a fair assessment. Eric was, um, you could tell that he poured a lot of blood, sweat, and tears into Pirates of the Caribbean. And I think that it was probably, it's it's been wearing on him from the standpoint that it did not get produced nearly quickly enough like it was supposed to you know they had they had to remove the rings which was a major element that while it, it didn't really bother me that they removed it when they announced it it really does affect the gameplay in terms of the the single disc just doesn't really do anything but the three discs was was a tremendous feature that had a lot of interaction with the ball and so um you do feel yeah. like that a masterpiece that this guy's worked on for so long uh, has been kind of chopped down a little bit. And now all of a sudden, you know, the game's just being stopped, you know, no more production of it. And so that, that's gotta be a little disheartening. Well, I think you know, it's burning him now though. Right. So it's burning him now. And I think people have gotten over Discgate and they've gotten over the treasure chest, not opening and closing. I think what's got to burn him inside now is, he, there's a okay. Th- this is the total number of pirates that have been built. There are one thousand of these games built. That is the number that Jersey Jack has produced. That is how many parts they had ordered for games. Now that one thousand of these games are out in the world, it seems like the unanimous feedback on this game from almost everyone who owns it is they love it and they think it's great. And we saw it get a lot of Twippy awards, and we saw a lot of you know, owners who, who wouldn't stop beating my door down to convince me it was the greatest game of all time. So the game is getting high accolades and great word of mouth. But the problem is this, right? Jack had to make a decision, and the decision was very simple. Do I order more parts for Pirates in bulk? Because you have to order in bulk. I would say he would have to order at least 500 to 1,000 parts to make it worthwhile. Um he had to make a decision. Do I do that? And the other problem they ran into Blake was for Jack to have made that decision to order those parts. He would have had to have done it months ago Mm -hmm. to get the parts in time to keep the game going now. And it, it, that's, that's what they ran into. And so no more pirates. Yeah. It's, it's unfortunate. And it's, um, I do think that, the game probably had more life in it uh, in terms of sales. I think that it was really just starting to get the exposure that it needed, especially now that production has started on the game uh, for it to really catch on with people. Um, So it's, it could end up being one of those games that, you know, has a fairly low production run and will always be loved by people and be in high demand, you know? Right, so if you have one, uh, you you now have the rarest Jersey Jack game of all time. Uh, it's going to be hard to get right now. And I, I saw someone list one for sale, and it was basically 8500 So they were charging pretty much what they, 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 they bought it for. Um, 
it's going to, I'm curious to see, you know, because there's a lot of fear of missing out happening around Pirates right now. A lot of my friends who are collectors and, and love Jersey Jack games, uh, they're really, really nervous that they're all going to be gobbled up and they won't be able to get one. And so I keep telling them the same advice. I said, look, just wait. Just wait and see because once Willy Wonka and Toy Story and Guns N' Roses are out, I think what you're going to see is some of the, you know, a good percentage, not a good percentage, but maybe like 10 to 20% of original Pirates of the Caribbean owners might list their games for sale to get one of the newer Jersey Jack games, right? So, And then, you know, that could be another 100, 200 come on the market for sale and I don't know. I don't. I don't know if they're going to go back and remake it. Do you ever think they're going to go back and remake this game? Well, <laughs> we've uh, we've seen that nothing's out of the question when it comes to new editions of Jersey Jet games. So, but you you bring up a valid point in terms of the parts that are needed, and you know, going back and rerunning Wizard of Oz makes sense because it's been a proven hit. Um, Pirates of the Caribbean may very well be more. Exp- it probably is a more expensive game to manufacture than Wizard of Oz is. Therefore, the parts are probably more expensive, and so um, they may not be as inclined to rerun it. Uh, with that being the case, but uh, I'm not ruling anything out in terms of that game being rerun. Now, what you what you did say before that is a very valid point. That I think when these other games that people know are coming and have a huge fan base behind them um, do arrive. I think that you're going to see a lot of pirates show up on the, the second hand market. I just got the sense, and this is just me. Maybe I'm reading too much into it, but they just seemed really tired as a team. And they seem like there's a lot of weight on their shoulders, Jersey Jack. And it didn't seem like they were, they were carrying themselves as if, they knew they had just like this juggernaut hit in Willy Wonka around the corner and they just couldn't wait to show us. You know, I just, I didn't get that vibe from them. And so that kind of makes me a little nervous that I'm not sure how confident they are. Not that Wonka is not like an awesome game, uh, but that they've figured out the issues when it comes to manufacturing, when it comes to the, you know, the quality control issues that they had with um, Pirates of the Caribbean. I'm just a little nervous for them that they may not have solved all of those production woes uh, and they are sort of anxiously moving towards Wonka versus uh, sort of just, you know, doing backflips and w- where they can't wait to get us the game. And we're supposedly supposed to see Wonka sometime soon. People kept saying it was going to be at the Midwest Gaming Classic, but Jack is in France uh, during that show. So I doubt you would see a New Jersey Jack game revealed if Jack is not even there. But maybe Pat Lawler will be there to pull the curtain off it. But we'll see. I think they need Jack because they need the showman. Pat, Pat's a great designer. He's not the best revealer of a product. So we'll yeah, see. that's yeah, that, that's a fair point. All right, let's talk about um, Spooky because I think Spooky. Uh, had a, had a nice showing with Alice Cooper. The, as I said in my last podcast, I thought the game came a long way in a year, and I actually enjoyed it a lot. And I was I was surprised. I, I thought the game, uh, when you can hear it, which I don't know if you got to play it, Blake, with without all the noise of the show, uh, but the game it has really come a long way. Did you get a chance to jump on it? Yeah, I did. Um, I was very impressed with the game. I mean, I think that I think that 
even though it's been a year since they unveiled it, it when they did that last year, it clearly was a, a huge step up for Spooky. And it really looked like, even at that time, that it was by far their best game. And I think a year later, with all the work they've done to it, and they're now starting to get them out the door, that it absolutely is their best game to date. So, um, you know, it's just an overall great package. The artwork is absolutely gorgeous. The animations are gorgeous. Um, you know, I, I even, the more I played it uh, with the time that I got on it last night, I really started to get a feel for the geometry on the game and, and getting some of that muscle memory. And you could get more flow going on that game than I think a lot of us initially got last year when, you know, we, we had one or two balls to to be able to try it out with, you right. know, so. You know what I really yeah. like too, and, and the game, you know, it's still a tight game, but it's, you know, shots were makeable. I was making everything. The thing that I do like about the spooky package, I, I and this this might sound weird. I haven't really talked about this, but it's it's one area of the Stern game that I just, just always annoys me in terms of design. I just don't like the stern speaker grill area at all. I, I think it looks like like just like an air filter there. It doesn't have any design element. And I do actually think the spooky speaker area just looks much better. And it's got similar size LCD. I think they're the same size. They look the same size. Um, yeah. But I think that, you know, for $6,500, which is where Al, Alice Cooper is coming in at, it does feel... Like it, it fits in perfectly between a Stern Pro and a Stern Premium's price point, right? It's just it sort of slides right in there. Uh, but they're giving you a lot of art. They're giving you a lot of game and the animations. I keep saying, I, I'm surprised uh, that that was not in the top three uh, for the Twippies for best animation. I, I was shocked, but I guess it's because most people haven't received the game yet, and there's no real exposure to it because uh, it's you know most people haven't played this game. Yeah, I was I was incredibly disappointed that that game was not nominated for best animations because I think that it had some of the most unique and fresh animations that you know not only the animations themselves but the the menu design as well in terms of they don't cram too much information in there. They get your score in there. They let you know where you are in terms of modes and stuff. But there's still a lot of room for just the, the cool visuals like we would get on the old DMDs, you know? So I think it was very, very well done. Um, I want to give a shout out to my friend, David Van S who also lives here in Houston. He's the one who did the animations for that game. And he is an incredibly talented guy. And even if the Twippies didn't recognize his work, I think a lot of people are going to recognize that, that that game has got some gorgeous work on it. So right. um, one, one thing that really stood out to me playing it again last night was the game's got a lot of depth to it in terms of, you know, it's, it's challenging enough that you're not just going to blow through mode after mode and work your way through the game, even like you can on a game like Adam's Family, where you're just very easily touring the mansion and going room to room with Alice Cooper, you know, you've actually got to really fight and work your way through each of these rooms. And even though it's got a lot of depth to it, I think people can walk up to it and understand that they're essentially playing a game of clue with this machine in terms of going from room to room. They're collecting weapons, collecting items to fight these monsters with the, the storyline is 
pretty straightforward and it's not that convoluted. Um, but you still have to pay attention to what you're doing, you right. know? So, yeah, and, uh, and I do think pins need, I think pins need a storyline and I, I just love, I love the magnetic ball save between the flippers. I, I it like all the lights in the machine go red and you hear this like electric and then it just like shoots the ball straight up the middle. I love, I, I just wish pinball had more of that in every game. If, if I were a designer, I would make sure there was just something like that that was a surprise element, especially when a ball's about to drain. There's nothing more exciting than having an extra life like that, but it happens in such a cool physical way like that. Um, so I, look, they're all all 500, right. I think, are spoken for. Uh, and if they weren't, I, I would assume they're going to be spoken for uh, after the show. So happy to see that game really come a long way in a year. All right, what else? So Multimorphic. So same place, same. Jerry gets the same spot every year. Uh, he's right yeah. there, sort of like near the front. Uh, you come around the corner, and there he is. He's got his his games networked. That was the big thing this year. They had four machines networked together um, with Cosmic Kart Racing, and we we jumped on and we played a network game. Blake, what were your thoughts? Uh, I like Cosmic Kart Racing a lot. As far as I think it's their most innovative upper play field um that they've gotten on all the games um the networking was was a lot of fun and i see a lot of potential with that i think the the thing i wanted to see the most was maybe more and maybe you code this into the lighting um maybe you could do it with a shaker motor but i'd like to see more visual interaction on your own machine coming from the other players that you're playing against so for example if another cart bumps into you or or interacts with you passes you something i feel like there should be some indication on the game you know that that says that while you're playing it right um but the concept of playing you know head-to-head competitively like that it's fantastic and it's amazing that companies haven't done something to that effect other than some of the old school games like joust which I still consider Joust to be one of the greatest pinball machines of all time, even though it's completely different from any normal machine. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's so the one thing I noticed when we were networking is that and, and I'm, it, it reminded me of Daytona USA back in the arcade where like all of them were linked up and you're all, you know, waiting for racers to, to all sit down and go at the same time. I did notice that the count like there was like a little bit of a lag on one of the machines where like. It was like yeah. it was like a half a second off when it was counting down, but we were all in the same race, and so I was like, "Well, is that just the Wi-Fi?" Or I don't know, I don't know what was there, but that that I noticed that part of it. But I do agree with you when you're in the race. Um, I I just think there needed to be. I didn't feel like I was racing other people more than I was just trying to hit the ramps uh, yeah. and get the power boost. Uh, the problem I have as a from a player standpoint when I when I was playing. You're so focused on looking down the play field, like toward the top of it, where the, where the, you know, you're trying to hit the shots that are in the upper area of the play field. And so everything that's happening on the screen, you can't even see, like you can't even pay attention to it because you're, you, you're, you're, you're trying to aim your shot ahead of that, like further up the play right. field. And so that's where I'm just like, I think they need to think about that because there's just too much stuff uh, that is that is going on, but you can't really look at all of it. And do you need it? Like, do you need all that stuff on the screen or can you make that a little bit of like less functionality? Because that's the only thing is I just didn't feel like 
I, I knew it was happening on the screen. And I, the, the screen that I was looking at was the back box that told you what place you were in, like one through four. Yes. Yeah. And, and even there, I just didn't get a sense of like how I really sped up other than just hitting the ramps. So I, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, that was, you know, without getting a, a, you know, rundown of, of the rules and what we really should be doing. That was the gist of it. That was what I got out of it. And certainly what I was trying to. Yeah. You know what I needed just like to be easier was cause there was, it, there was all those beautiful lights on the ramp and I think they would go. Like, like I said, I think there's a white. lot of potential there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I think that, I think that once again, there, there's some great ideas there. I could only imagine what that game could be like if you had, let's say Mario Kart as a theme wrapped around that concept, you know, where you could be using the playfield LCD to like shoot the turtle shells and, you know, fire banana peels and stuff like that. Um, and maintain that interactivity between machines. I think it could be a huge hit. I mean, it's a really interesting concept. Um, I think that it's just going to boil down to the execution. I mean, we know that Jerry can really innovate and engineer some fantastic mechanisms. I mean, I think that that magnet ball lock that's on cosmic cart racing is still one of the most innovative mechanisms that I've seen in a game in the last five years. Easily. Look, the Jerry's on to something, whether or not this is the best implementation of it, but network pinball and internet-connected machines are going to radically change pinball. Mark my words. And Stern is starting to do it. And people are underestimating uh, the game changer. This will be when it happens. When you have machines connected to each other, the what that opens up in terms of player versus player opportunities is going to enhance the fun of pinball like never before. And I can't wait because... Uh, I, I think people think pinball needs to, you know, can't do that, but it can. It's so, I mean, it's so awesome that if I hit a shot on my machine, that could somehow impact your machine, Blake, and I could send balls, you know, you could have a game where like you're trying to get rid of the balls and only have one ball in play and I, I can keep feeding you more balls. And it it's just, there's, there's so much opportunity to create player versus player experiences that it, that is so untapped and I can't wait till that happens. It's going to happen yeah. in the next couple of years. You'll see. I mean, can, can you can you imagine if you took a game like Batman 66 and you had two machines that were remotely linked to each other and one player was fighting as Batman and Robin while the other player was getting to play as the villains trying to foil the other opponent. Absolutely. I mean, how, how, how cool would that be? I mean, that would be a really interesting dynamic, you know, right. between two people. And it wouldn't be hard, right? So you're Batman and Robin and you've got to hit, you know, you let's say there's like a mode where it's like, it's a five minute car chase. And do you capture the Joker? Or does he get away? Right. Right. And then during that, you got to hit your shots. I got to hit my shots to escape. And whoever is more successful wins. It, 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 it'd be so much fun. And I think it people, creates infinite storytelling as well. It's like a choose your own adventure type absolutely. of a type of a layout. You it know? also, you know what it also does, Blake, which pinball doesn't have now. Cause right now, if you think about a pinball experience, you play a game and you kind of have to play through the three balls in the way the game is coded to, you know, progress through the game. But here's the thing. If I only have 10 minutes and I want to play pinball or like, let's say I have five minutes and I want to play pinball 
and you do too. And I'm like, hey man, like, why don't you just play a quick game of like Batman Joker chase? Like we could, we could yeah. jump in and start the mode and just play and see who wins. And then that's it. You can have a quick player versus player um, experience. You can't do that in pinball right now. You're, you're, you're yeah. always on the same journey every time you, you, you plunge. Absolutely. Yeah. I, there, there is a lot of potential. And like you said, uh, Jerry is, is definitely onto something, whether it's in this format or some other format. Um, you know, his, his ideas are definitely headed in the right direction. Right. So something I was a little disappointed in at TPF, and this has nothing to do with the show. There were just no surprises. There was like no surprises. Yeah, that's I, I got the same feeling, and you know what? That that was a feeling that I had going into the show. Honestly, there was there was nothing that I was just super excited to to see at the show. Honestly, and I have to admit that the most exciting thing that happened this whole weekend, uh, you know, the show is a fantastic show, and the vendors are awesome. I was very pleased to see how many great new vendors they had there, but the Twippies were freaking hilarious amazingly organized and executed and i i think that that was the highlight of the whole weekend for me honestly it was awesome and we do have to congratulate again zach greg and jeff and all the presenters and all the people who worked behind the scenes to make that show what it was i think once they aired the opening sequence everyone realized that we were <laughs> in for a treat i mean it, it yeah. was it was so well done and it was so much fun being there um you know, were there any surprises? And we'll we'll talk a little bit about you know the favorite pinball podcast surprise. But were there any surprises in terms of who won what that you thought would could have gone another way? Uh, there were a couple of categories, and I can't remember which one specifically. But there were a few categories that I just really assumed were going to go in favor of Iron Maiden, and Deadpool ended up winning. Right, best call out. Was, I was shocked. That yeah, Iron Maiden I, did not win. Like even when they gave the examples, yeah. the Iron Maiden ones were incredible, and the Deadpool ones were so corny. And yeah, Deadpool I thought won. That there might be some backlash on Deadpool winning for callouts because everybody wanted a more R-rated version of those callouts. Right. You know, so I actually, I actually really thought that that was going to hurt Deadpool winning that award a lot. Uh, actually, the the biggest surprise to me, and this wasn't for a game that won the award, but I was shocked that Pirates of the Caribbean was in the top three for best artwork. I really was because I assumed we, we knew that Deadpool and Iron Maiden were going to be two of the three, but I really thought that the Beatles might have been the third machine that was going to be in the running. And right. you know what I think happened to the Beatles? I think people are just so, when the voting was happening, right, when the trippy voting was, hap was happening, I think people like were originally really down on the Beatles because of the price gouging, it seemed. And, and yeah. I think that hurt it. I mean, it's crazy how that, that hurts. That shouldn't take away from the artistic work that Franchi did on the game. Uh, but that's kind of what the Twippies are, you know. It is a little bit of just how are you feeling. It's a popularity contest for all these categories. And if, if you don't catch a game when the mood is right, when voting is going on, it, it, it kind of doesn't matter. You know, people might go against something even if it deserves to be there. Yeah. And, and, and look, I mean, you know, I don't want, I'm not saying that the artwork on pirates is bad. It's actually for it being Photoshopped together and airbrushed and whatnot. It's actually very beautifully executed. Um, 
I just think that when you're when you're comparing that to the the true artistic talent that Chris has got in terms of hand drawing and and painting and you know doing all the work he does for for his machines I was surprised to see that something involving Photoshop would you know would take a third place spot essentially over the work that he's done. Right. So, but I, th- I, I really sincerely hope that it's going to be Chris's year this year. I think that, you know, he really came out of the gate swinging in 2019 with the monsters art package. I mean, they're absolutely gorgeous. So, um, but overall I, um, I, I was surprised that pirates got a artwork nomination that high. I mean, up. I, I mean it's going to be hard for him to win this year. Cause I don't know if he has another stern game in the hopper for this year. I don't think Munster's, you know, it, Munster's just came out and there are so many more titles coming out. Will yeah. people vote for Munster's come like nine, 10, 11 months from now? So we'll see. We'll see. But it, it doesn't take yeah. away from how awesome the Munster's look. Um, the biggest surprise to me in the Twippies was Pirates of the Caribbean winning for best theme integration. Yeah, that that also. <laughs> it has no assets from whatever. the movie. How did it integrate? <laughs> yeah the theme in the best way the category wasn't you did the best with the assets you had category it was best theme integration right it it was that was once again i think i think when the voting was going on i think people were very much on riding on a high on pirates of the caribbean and i think that to your point about the beatles kind of leaving a bad taste in people's mouths at the time voting was going on. I think the same thing may have happened in pirates favor as well. Well, here's what I think happened. I think what happened was this. I think, you know, iron maiden, obviously humongously popular at the twippies and people love the game. It was really hard to vote for iron maiden as best theme integration. You know why? Because everyone knows it was archer. Everyone knows that it was just a reskin of an older game. So right. I don't think people wanted to vote for that game as theme integration, uh, and I think Deadpool with the with you know the PG callouts felt like a you couldn't vote for that for theme integration, which is ironic because it won for best callouts. And then if you were to ask me in terms of theme integration, uh, you know I think kind of Pirates sort of snuck in there because all the you know the stern ones sort of kind of killed themselves in, in weird ways and and and. You know, I would look at Beatles like maybe I think Supreme actually was the best theme integration when you think about it. Like all Supreme is when you think about <laughs> integrating a theme into pinball, that's all Supreme is, is the big logo. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you you do bring up a really good point that I that I honestly hadn't thought about too much, and that is the fact that pirates for lack of assets, even the way that they have specifically focused on elements from the movies. Uh, and, and custom design mechanisms around those elements. From that standpoint, it really is a great theme integration. You know, even even aside from the lack of the characters and the dialogue and stuff, you know, a rocking pirate ship makes sense for a Pirates of the Caribbean game. But you're right, the Stern games just more or less they they integrate a theme around whatever whatever fan layout that they can modify, you know, um, without really adding a a custom mechanism necessarily. Sure. Sure. 
Well, like I, I mentioned at the beginning when we started talking that I, w- I would talk about the, the booing incident when they announced the favorite pinball podcast. And here's what I, what I want to do. I don't really want to talk about that much re- anymore. You know, I think it only gives attention to the person who did that. I think, you know, the person who did it and, and I know who it is. I'm not going to out them on this show. Um, they're a tournament player from New York. Uh, it's, I think that person just should apologize to, uh, to Greg, Zach and Jeff and for all the people, uh, that got disrupted by, but mainly to the guys who ran the show. And I just want to say, I wasn't expecting that. I think some of this is just payback for what happened at the New York city pinball thing. And again, I apologize to all the people involved with that. I keep apologizing. Someone even said I should apologize on stage for that again, but let's, let's just all move forward. I mean, I hope we all can forgive. And, I, and look, I forgive the guy who booed me at uh, at the Twippies. I, I, I don't. I, it wasn't respectful. But I forgive you, man. If you have a problem with me, um, I'll happily talk to you about it. You might just hate my guts and not want to do anything with me ever, and that's cool. Um, but let's not, not let's not ever again take it to a level where we're disrespecting other people's hard work. You know, you want to come up and say something to me? That's cool. But there are so many people that worked really hard on the show. And I, and I think they deserve the respect of not having someone uh, to do something like that. And, and I'll leave it at that. And we'll, 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 we'll start a new era in pinball where we can all respect each other and stop doing stuff that is um, disrupting you know, people's good time in the hobby. Does that sound fair, Blake? I, I think that's fair, Chris. You know, I think um, you know, if, if what he did last night was really due to the incident in New York, you know, then, all right, let's, let's call it a wash and, and move on. I mean, I think that, you know, you were certainly wrong in what happened in New York, but you have manned up and you've, you know, apologized and realized that that was not something to be proud of. And, uh, I hope that this guy as smug as he was, I hope that he realizes that that was a very, you know, uh, distasteful thing to do, especially, you know, when you've got people like Jeff and Greg and Zach, who are some of the nicest people in this hobby that have worked their asses off, you know, organizing this. I mean, those guys were running around like crazy yesterday, making sure that everything was, was organized and ready to go for those awards. And they, you know, I think, I think everybody saw, they did a phenomenal job. So, yeah. And, and just to clarify two things for people, because I I hear people talking about this first thing, the Christopher Franchi, smashing of zombie yetis <laughs> award so this i i've heard so many different takes on this i i think i think when people saw it over the internet it didn't come across as well and they thought it was real and then they thought it was like a really awkward moment and i don't know if greg and zach were in on the joke and i think it didn't translate very well for people what did, what did you think when that happened okay so i i got the whole rundown after the fact of of what what happened Greg, Zach, and Jeff, all of them were in on it, okay? They, they knew about it. The only person who wasn't in on it was Mike Vinicar, who was up there receiving the award, you know, on behalf of the Stern team. Um, <laughs> my initial thought, uh, I happened to be sitting right behind Mike, and after that whole thing went down, I did think that initially I thought Chris was just joking because – I had heard that they were going to do some sort of gag stuff and it was going to be kind of an inside joke type thing. So I knew that Chris wasn't being serious, uh, especially because he just went back to his seat in the audience. I mean, if he was really serious, he would have stormed out of the room. But anyways, 
the only the only reason I thought maybe maybe it was real was because as Mike was coming back to his seat, he just had a look on his face and he was just shaking his head like, what the hell was that all about? Right. And it, it made sense that, you know, it was a joke. Mike just wasn't in on it, uh, unfortunately. And I think that they had also agreed before the show that Mike and Chris were going to kind of stagger who was receiving what awards. And Chris originally was supposed to be the one to receive Jeremy's award. In fact, he had talked to Jeremy about it uh, a couple of weeks ago. Um, and also, by the way, the trophy that was destroyed was a uh, was an extra trophy that they had. It was not Jeremy's real trophy Jeremy will be getting his real Twippy trophy. Right, right. So. I heard that. Well, I think what happened too is if you were watching it uh, across the internet or on TV, the it was out of frame when he, yeah. he stomped it. So people were just like, wait, what's going on? Because you couldn't see it. I think everyone in attendance uh, got more of the full picture. Um, so it was clearly a joke. So everyone, if you think that was real, Christopher Franchi is not a bastard. Uh, it was it was a joke. It might not have gone over as well. And I think I think everyone was learning too in these live shows. It just takes it, it, there's an approach to getting humor and getting people laugh laughing and getting the room going. It's not as easy as as it as it seems. Um, the the other thing yeah. that was just a joke, just to clarify that George Gomez is not my informant that hands me <laughs> terrible information. That is that was a joke. Okay, so I think some people thought that George Gomez actually did tell me that Chicago Gaming Company was making Alien. Um, he did not. Um, so if you didn't pick up on that sarcasm, uh, may God help you. Uh, so, Blake, anything else? I think we're at the hour point now. Just wanted to know if there was any final thoughts you had about the show. Um, and then uh, we'll, uh, we'll wrap it up. Yeah. One other highlight from the Twippies, I got to say. Um, I, I kind of thought this was a big deal because these Two people definitely didn't have to do this, especially for a, a first ever pinball award show that was live. But how cool was it that they got John Reese Davies of Indiana Jones and Lord of the Rings fame and Butch Patrick from the Munsters to actually go up and present two of the awards? It was great. I thought that was amazing. It was awesome. I mean, and to hear John Reese Davies give his jackpot call outs in person was awesome. <laughs> You know what I don't? Yeah, and it was it was such a great night. That room was packed. There were people standing outside of the doors watching this ceremony, and on top of that, it wasn't all just a big joke. I know when the Twippies, when Jeff started the Twippies last year, it kind of initially seemed like it was just kind of a joke, and you know nobody was going to take it quite as seriously. But I'll say this: you know, every manufacturer that had a horse in the race last night, they were in the room. They were watching it, and the people that that didn't win, I think they still, you know, they wanted to win. It was an honor to to win an award last night and to have your right. machine and all of your hard work recognized. And and I thought it was phenomenal how they kicked off the ceremony with the highlight reel of every machine that had been vo voted on. Because unfortunately, you know, the, a lot of those machines didn't get mentioned another time throughout the rest of the ceremony. But, um, I think it just goes to show you that there are a lot of people putting a lot of work into these things. And it's not just some stupid little plastic trophy that it actually matters to people that the peers, that their peers and their customers, um, who are so passionate about these things, uh, 
feel so strongly and positive about the work that these guys have done. So it was, it was an awesome event. I really, really hope that Jeff and Greg and Zach will do this again live next year. Um, even if it's not at TPF, if they try to do it at right. another show to kind of spread the wealth a little bit. Um, I think that, you know, people will really enjoy seeing this stuff in person. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, it was a terrific evening. Thank you again for letting me crash in your room at TPF. It's becoming an annual thing. Um, always a pleasure, always a pleasure hanging out at TPF. And for those of you out there, um, you know, we didn't even say this on this episode, but the shows are all about the people. It's all about hanging out with your pinball friends and making new pinball friends. It's not even about the games because at the end of the day, all these, these games, they're only fun when friends come over your house and you enjoy the hobby with other people. And that's, that's why we're in it. We get to meet all these awesome people and, and geek out over pinball. So Blake, thank you for coming on. I know we're both exhausted. Let's get some rest and, and, and recharge. Thanks, Chris. I appreciate it. Great hanging out with you this weekend. And for everybody else that was at uh, TPF, I sincerely hope that you guys had fun. For those of you that went for the first time, uh, I helped put that show together too. And I know everybody that volunteers and works their butts off to make it happen. Um, is truly dedicated to putting on a fantastic show. So support your local shows, create new local shows and, uh, you know, help, help share pinball with a whole new generation of people. All right. Well said. Well, everyone have a great night. We'll be back with more of Canada's pinball podcast soon. Later. Cause it'll give me time to think If I had a chance, I'd ask a one to 